Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the most important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. In this episode, we feature the lecture, 60s Counterculture, the 11th in our series, Culture Wars Then and Now. The lectures were recorded at the Academy Summer School, and this talk examines the assumption that today's progressive left is a continuation of left-wing politics in the 1960s. The lecturer is Dr. Greg Scorzo, director and editor of Culture on the Offensive website and host of the Art of Thinking events. Today's talk is going to be asking the, or answering the question rather, of is the leftist culture of 2019 a continuation of 60s counterculture? Now the motivation for answering this question is I've noticed lately that there have been a lot of pragmatic arguments for joining the left. That is, join the left even if you might disagree with some of the things that sound a bit extreme because you're joining something that on balance is better to be on its side rather than the other side. And one of the most powerful pragmatic arguments that I've been seeing for joining the left today is you're taking part in a continuation of 60s counterculture. You're taking part in maybe 60s counterculture 2.0. And it's much better to be on that side than to be on the other side of things, especially given things like Trump and Brexit. Okay, so what I'm gonna argue in this talk is actually that pragmatic argument is a mistake. Because 60s counterculture and the 2019 left are actually not compatible with each other. Um, that is, there is a serious clash of values in both of them. Um, such that if you like 60s counterculture and what I think the predominant elements of what it stood for and how it affected society in the decades since, you shouldn't like the modern left. And conversely, if you like the modern left, you shouldn't like 60s counterculture for the most part. Now, the most difficult obstacle towards making this argument compellingly is the very obvious observation that so much of what's in contemporary leftist culture, which is bad, came from 60s counterculture. How are you gonna get over that one, right? And even worse, so much of what was bad in the academia of the 60s very quickly infiltrated and colonized the academia of mainstream Western universities fairly quickly. And it's now done a lot of damage to the intellectual life of the university pretty consistently in the last 45 or 50 years. Right? So how do we get over that objection? The way to get over that objection is to say, yes, that radicalism came from 60s counterculture, but that was not the predominant element of 60s counterculture. That was not the element of 60s counterculture that affected our pop culture, our etiquette, and our election politics. The element of 60s counterculture that affected those things is the individualist elements of 60s counterculture, which I'm going to talk about. And the best way to defend that idea is that if radicalism had been what made the predominant impact on the West from 60s counterculture, if most of what impacted the West was things like May 68, our modern left would look totally different because so much of our modern left is reacting to this terrible mainstream society, which if you unpack what it means by mainstream society, is mainstream society that's been impacted for four and a half decades by the individualist elements of 60s counterculture. So what is 60s counterculture, specifically 60s left-wing counterculture? I'm going to define this as the movement that begins in 1966 with the uh, kind of explosion of psychedelia and ends in 1977 with the mainstreaming 
of punk. So what you have in this period is a series of uh, movements and ideas um, which center around a very obvious to tease out theme when you think about what these things in, junction, in conjunction with each other seem to be spelling out. So first off, you've got the beginnings of environmentalism. Secondly, you have the anti-war movement, which initially in the US is about Vietnam, and then it becomes something which spreads generally as an influence to the counterculture in Europe, even though Europe isn't directly involved in Vietnam. Most importantly, you've got a pluralistic free speech movement. Um, now, what is pluralistic free speech, right? Pluralistic free speech is not the idea that you should be able to say whatever you want without being censored by the government. It's the idea that you should be able to say whatever you want without being censored, by the, for the most part, by the government. But on top of that, we should have a cultural and social environment where we encourage people to say the largest array of things that they might think to be true using the largest array of expressions, even offensive expressions. Right? The goal of pluralistic free speech is to allow radical and dangerous ideas into the discourse to move society forward in a brave and fearless way, and also to maintain peace while doing that. Because if you tell people that they're not allowed to say what they think, the only way that they can impact society in virtue of holding those views is through violence. Right? So pluralistic free speech is about trying to combine a fearless, opus, a fearless openness to new ideas with peace, which is a big part of counterculture as well because of the anti-war movement. Right? So on top of that, then you've got lots of other things like crazy fashion. So fashion, which for the time is not instrumental, uh, fashion which is inappropriate for the workplace, fashion which specifically involves gender bending, the most iconic example of which is men having long hair. You've got transgressive aesthetics in rock music, in psychedelic films, in pop art. You know, we have works of art which are challenging rather than uh, things which are easy to consume and digestible and accessible, things that involve a high degree of violence and sexuality and surrealism and things like that. You've also got a sexual revolution happening at this time for men and for women. And what we often forget about this particular sexual revolution is the elements of this revolution that were related to men. So we talk about today things like you know abortion, contraception rights, the ability of females to commodify their sexuality in ways that were more extreme than the past, and so on. But what we often forget is this is also a time when, for the first time, there's a destigmatization of the idea that you can have sex with people because they're hot. And there's an egalitarian attitude towards sexual propositioning, where men and women, for the first time, can go up to each other and talk to each other and say, I think you look hot for this reason, and I'd like to fuck you. And both men and women can do this for the first time in the social sphere without anywhere near the stigma that came before this. right? And this is something that's very important specifically related to contemporary feminism, because it's like we have a collective amnesia, but we forgot that a big part of this sexual revolution was allowing women to have enough agency to deal with men sexually propositioning them in a way which was egalitarian, where in the propositioning, women might feel uncomfortable. Right? That's something that's very easy for people to forget today about this movement. You also have the beginnings of LGBT activism. You have a hybridization of the late civil rights movement and the hippie movement aligning. What that means is in 66 to 68, you've got the final years of Martin Luther King before his assassination in 68. A lot of ideas that come from him and his movements and also the feminist movements align with the hippie culture. Now, why is that alignment happening? Because both of them in different ways are responding to the feeling that Western capitalist society is de-individuating them in some way. 
So women and minorities are being treated on the basis of stereotypes about the groups that they belong to. They're not allowed to be individuals. They're being treated as representatives of the groups, being prevented from doing things because of the groups that they belong to, whether those groups are gender-related or racially related. And also the hippies are feeling de-individuated because they're feeling pressure to conform to a society that doesn't suit their needs and suit the things that they need to do to live meaningful lives. So they're being pressured to having short hair, getting up at six in the morning, having 2.5 children in a suburb in ways that are odd, at odds with what hippies feel allow them to express themselves as individuals. So de-individuation is, I think, the main cause of these two different sectors coming together in one singular movement at this time. And also alongside this, or maybe even right in the back of it, is a critique of consumer society. So the idea that if you buy more things, fundamentally you're going to become addicted to the buying. You're going to be buying for things like social status rather than meaning. And fundamentally, the less you consume, the more meaningful your life is going to be, especially if you consume the sorts of things that for the 60s make your life meaningful, like books and records and shirts and brown rice and taro cards and things like that, as opposed to big cars and washing machines. And then on top of that, or rather exemplifying that, is a broader critique of market-based conformism. And what is that? Market-based conformism is the idea that what allows the post-World War II capitalist Western English-speaking economy to be so plentiful and so safe and allow people so many different options to buy compared to previous eras is that the price everybody has to pay is to be part of the production process. They have to get up at six in the morning, they have to get a job, they have to wear short hair, they have to wear a suit, they have to have 2.5 children in a suburb to be completely unthreatening, not do drugs, not have promiscuous sex, not have sex before marriage, not be gay, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, and that fundamentally is what all of this, I think, has in common, right? All of these things are a critique of Western capitalist society for being too collectivist, for not accommodating the diversity and dignity of individuals enough, either on the racial and gender front or on the bohemian front. That's what 60s counterculture, I think, fundamentally is about in terms of the main impact that it's had on the subsequent decades. Now, you might disagree with all of this. You might think this is naive. You might say it's irrationalist. You might say it's misguided. But what's important about this is this is fundamentally an individualist movement, rightly or wrongly. This is not a collectivist movement. And that's why I think we can say that the 2019 left and the iconic things that are associated with this are not compatible with 60s counterculture because this is very much a kind of collectivist movement. So what are the hallmarks of 2019 left-wing culture? And by the way, I don't think this is actually counterculture. I think this is mainstream culture. So the first thing, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, is there's a combination or hybridization of democratic socialism with globalism, which is very popular. So on the one hand, people want an expansive welfare state. They don't like austerity, but they also tend to like the EU, which promotes austerity because they associate the EU with multiculturalism, which in a way they think is more important than opposing austerity in all of its forms, because if they didn't, they'd hate the EU as well. Secondly, there's climate change apocalypticism, which is different to environmentalism, because environmentalism says our industrial processes could in some way ruin the planet and stop it from being inhabitable, but that's not the only consideration that we should think about when we decide how to save the planet, because part of scaling back industrialization involves potentially hurting people and hurting poor people, and we have to make you know, choices that involve compromises. Apocalypticism says we don't. We just need to do whatever we need to do to save the planet from industrialization 
And if in the process of getting rid of you know, fossil fuels before we have time to replace it with green technology, we end civilization in some other way, so be it. Because we don't even think about that. With apocalypticism, it's like one track mind. You've got to do whatever you can to save the planet. and All the other considerations are just obstacles towards saving the planet. Finally, the third aspect uh, of 2019 left-wing culture, which is very perspicuous, is call-out culture and symbolic prohibitions as part of the modern left's civil rights movement. What that means is, for the modern left, it's not enough to simply do structural changes to end racism or even to um, make it illegal to formally discriminate in some way. You have to ban even symbols associated with bigotry of any kind. You have to ban words. You even have to ban things which don't have diversity uh, don't have diversity requirements adequately met that have nothing to do with the real world. Like if there's a fictional story about three people and all those three people are white, for the contemporary left that's problematic even though it's fictional people that don't actually exist. So the modern left is all about changing bigotry, getting rid of it by getting rid of the symbols associated with it. That's a really big thing. Also in gender, you've got things in the contemporary left like rape culture, consent classes, hashtag me too. What does all that have in common? It's a kind of feminism which is about taking things away from men rather than giving women rights and freedoms they didn't previously have or giving men and women rights and freedoms they didn't previously have in the name of egalitarianism. It's all about taking things away from men to even things out because it conceptualizes men and women as a kind of class war where men are at the top, women at the bottom. In order to take stuff away from men to even out things, you know, you have to redistribute power. Also, there's a transgender rights program in the 2019 left, which is all about relativizing sexual dimorphism, which means that, you know, if you have a penis, whether it's a male penis or a female penis is up to you. Uh, also, you've got the extension of gender changes to minors, which is a really radical change that we haven't seen uh, in either 60s counterculture or the interim period between then and now. Finally, um, a big component of the civil rights agenda of 2019 left is generalizable apocalypticism about everything. And that's one of the reasons why Western society in left culture is called white supremacist, right? Because to call it white supremacist means that the last 50 years have been a total and complete failure. Things are 10 times worse than they've ever been. And they're using a term to describe mainstream culture that most of us associate with the KKK. So they're psychologically saying implicitly, it's as bad as the KKK. Then finally, or not finally next, religions also change uh, in the modern left way that they are perceived. So even 10 years ago, you could critique a religion for being right wing. Whereas now, religions get treated as ethnic minority cultures rather than ideologies you can argue for or against, which is why you especially can't say something like, I don't like Islam because I think it's a right-wing religion because it's not considered a political ideology in left-wing culture. It's considered an ethnic minority culture that you are oppressing if you say anything critical about it and you're not from that culture. And then that leads to intersectionality being the basis of today's left-wing social etiquette, intersectionality is for those of you who don't already know, what is derisively called the oppression Olympics etiquette, where everybody has different social obligations based on the groups that they belong to and based on how much power needs to be redistributed from one group to another. There's also the politicization of safety culture, which means that people who say things that violate the orthodoxies of the left are often referred to and described in a manner similar to the way that carcinogens are described. You know, you're a health hazard. You need to be quarantined from the rest of the population or else you will cause irrevocable harm. 
And that bypasses any debate where you're persuaded to change your views. And the most iconic examples of that are things like trigger warnings and safe spaces. And then finally, uh, pluralistic free speech in modern left-wing culture becomes associated with the right. And what that means is, in the modern left, their version of free speech is, for the most part, the government can't censor you. But th there will be a community environment where there are so many social incentives for you not to break ranks with left orthodoxy, you'll be an incredibly unusually brave person if you go against the social incentives to stay in line with the left. Right? That's the left's new version of free speech. Now, I disagree with many right-wing people who say the left don't believe in free speech. I think this is actually a version of free speech, anti-pluralistic free speech. I just think it happens to not work as free speech because it doesn't allow for peaceful social change. Now, what do all these things have in common in 2019 left-wing culture? Well, what we have in common is there's a real contempt for Western society for the mechanisms of industrial production that produce plentifulness because there's an idea that dominant groups in Western society who benefit, i.e. white people, straight people, males, cisgendered people, etc., are oppressing all the other marginalized minority groups. And individuals also oppress minority groups. And this is a very important part of the modern left-wing culture, right? This is very much a collectivist movement because it's not just about helping the minority groups fight against the majority groups. If you are a black person, if you are a trans person, and you go against left orthodoxies, you get put in the same camp as the dominant white groups too, right? So this is a movement which is in favor of helping minority groups and also fighting against not just majority demographics, but any individual who breaks ranks from the orthodoxies. So this is an anti-individualist movement, a collectivist movement, in a way that 60s counterculture in its predominant impact I don't think was. Now what are the core clashes between this modern left-wing culture? and 60s counterculture that we can identify, which explain why there's such a huge difference between these two movements. The first clash is the 60s civil rights movement for equality is about equal treatment. The 2019 movement for equality is about equality of outcome, or what's sometimes called equality of power. What does that mean? Equality of treatment is about treating everyone as equal individuals, not having double standards between any two groups of people on the basis of the groups they belong to, not treating them as representatives of the groups they belong to, but just treating them as whoever they are, as John, as Mary, as Lisa, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Equality of outcome is about looking at two different demographic groups and saying, are there any statistics that we can observe where it seems like this demographic group on balance is doing better than this one? Aha, look, oh, this one, one is, is more likely to get thrown in prison. Oh, look, this one is less likely to be in an advert. Oh, look, this one is less likely to be in a high position of power. So we need to redistribute power between these two groups. Now, sometimes redistribution comes in financial forms like reparations. Sometimes it comes in hiring practices in the name of uh, diversity quotas. But mostly what it's about is etiquette. So what it means is, if I'm, for instance, Mexican-American, which I am, and most of you I can see are Caucasian, it means there's an etiquette between us where I can make jokes, I can make stereotypical generalizations, I can use words, I can even incorporate parts of your culture into my day-to-day -day practice, and you can't do any of that because there are clear double standards in the etiquette responsibilities that I have and that you have, and those are their deliberately to redistribute power. So that's what's fundamentally different between the 60s idea of equality and the 2019 equality of outcome, which is what we have now. Now, how do we know equality of outcome was not the dominant ideology of 60s counterculture. It's because if it was, 
the turn against racism that we saw in the 60s and 70s by the mainstream, it would never have happened. Why is that? It's because if you go to a bog-standard racist, you know, your average straight white male from 1959 or whatever, and you say to him, how would you feel if people treated you differently because your skin color or your genders were different, but on the inside you were just like everybody else? There's a good chance that that bog-standard racist might go, yeah, I wouldn't like that. And then you have the beginning of a transformation of society against racism. But suppose you went to that same box standard racist and you said, how would you feel if you were in a group that had less power statistically in terms of advantages than another group? It would make no sense for that person to see that as an injustice because the person would say, um, I'm already in eight groups like that. I'm short, I'm fat, I have uh, less intelligence than my neighbor. I wear glasses, I'm less socially confident, et cetera, et cetera. They wouldn't even conceptualize that as an injustice until they first accepted anti-racism. So that's how we know that this was not the predominant element of 60s counterculture, even though there were 60s radicals who were obsessed with equality of outcome. If this was the dominant value, the civil rights transformation we see wouldn't have actually happened. Now, why would a 60s leftist, a typical individualist 60s leftist, oppose equality of outcome? because equality of outcome is incompatible with the things that people hated most about racism. So if you're into equality of outcome, you constantly have to de-individuate other people and yourself, first of all. And second of all, everyone has to be beholden to different double standards, right? That's what everybody hated about Jim Crow. So why would that be the thing that motivates people to turn against racism, right? So then the second core value clash between the 60s counterculture in its individualist variant and the modern left-wing culture is universalism. Now by universalism here, I mean the attempt to solve a social problem in a way where you don't pit different groups against each other in the way that you solve it. So for instance, if you were gonna try and solve knife crime in a universalist way, you'd say, okay, here's some government policies that we can predict will make knife crime go down and everybody don't do knife crime, right? But we're not gonna say that any particular group is responsible for white, for knife crime. Whereas if you were an anti-universalist about knife crime, what you would say is, white people, it's your responsibility to make sure that knife crime doesn't happen in black areas, right? So you're implicitly pitting two groups against each other when you do anti-universalism. And what I wanna contend is that the 60s is very much about universalism. The 2019 left is very much anti-universalist in the ways that it deals with social problems. Now, what's interesting is how we know this. So, Basically, the way that we can know that 60s counterculture was not predominantly anti-universalist is because up until a few years ago, we've done about 45 years of de-racialization etiquette whenever we talk about racism. What does that mean? It's whenever we talk about a racial problem, what we first do is we say, okay, here's the problem, here's the racist uh, thing that's causing the problem, let's get rid of the racism, but after that, we don't mention race. We talk about John, we talk about Sally, we talk about Michelle, we talk about Jorge or whoever, but then we keep race out of it. What the modern left has done in the last four years is try very effectively to re-socialize people to saying you must notice race all the time, right? If 60s counterculture had been about getting people to do that, the left today wouldn't be trying to socialize people out of it. And also, why would a 60s counterculture person who is archetypically individualist hate anti-universalism? For a very simple reason, because anti-universalism holds the individual responsible on behalf of the group, and 60s counterculture is all about individualism. 
The third value clash between these two movements is about risk-taking. So for the, fifth, for the 60s, uh, taking risks liberates the individual from the constraints of market conformism. For 2019 left, taking risks allows dominant groups, i.e. straights, whites, males, cisgenders, and neurotypical people to jeopardize the safety and emotional well-being of women and minorities. Now, how do we know that this was not the attitude of 60s counterculture? Well, 60s counterculture made its political change predominantly by taking two different kinds of risks, risk to oneself and risk to others. So the risk to oneself is an engaging in sexually promiscuous behavior and taking drugs and looking weird, taking the consequences of those things, um, and then having everybody else in society notice, okay, people are doing this, and then the world hasn't ended, and then therefore, social change happens. So, right, so that's the first kind of risk that people in the 60s are taking. The second risk they're taking is risk to the well-being psychically of others. That is, they're risking the psychic well-being of their parents by doing these things. And that's why there's so many iconic stories of so many uh, parents, including my grandparents, who had nervous breakdowns when they noticed that their children were part of the counterculture and the children didn't care. They thought that was a good thing because offensiveness for 60s counterculture is generally a good thing because it wakes people up out of complacency. So why would a leftist from the 60s oppose the 2019 left's politicized safety culture? Um, for a very obvious reason. If they did it at that time, it wouldn't work. If you went up to a bog-standard homophobe, for instance, and you were a hippie, and you said something like, your homophobia is a danger to me and my people, then the homophobe would say, fine, get away from us then. They wouldn't say, oh, we're going to change. They'd say, if we're dangerous to you, you're weird people who, you know, you have problems, so get away from us. There wouldn't be this onus on getting the bigot to change and to validate the um, anti-bigot in the way that you see today, because in order for any of that to happen, the risk that the people took in the 60s had to have massive social changes and impacts first. And then finally, the fourth value clash between the 60s counterculture and the modern left today, I think, is 60s counterculture is very much in favor of pluralistic free speech, and as we noticed earlier, modern left-wing culture is very much in favor of anti-pluralistic free speech. Now, how do we know that anti-pluralistic free speech was not the predominant position of free speech in the 60s? Very easy. It's because anti-pluralistic free speech puts pressure on the individual to conform. If there's anything 60s counterculture people hate, it's conforming. And then also, why would a, a 60s leftist be totally against anti-pluralistic freedom of speech? Again, that's pretty easy to suss out. It's because anti-pluralistic free speech creates the conditions for violence because people can't change society peacefully based on their beliefs. Their beliefs get stigmatized, they have to hold them in, and then the only change they can create to society on the basis of those beliefs is through violence rather than verbal expressions, right? And the 60s counterculture person is all about peace, so they're gonna hate something which both uh, pressures them to conform and is dangerous for expanding peace over time. So to wrap this up, um, this is why I think it's fundamentally a mistake to say that the modern left is a continuation of the major aspects of the 60s left, because that was fundamentally, whether you like it or not, a movement critiquing how Western society in its capitalism was too collectivist, whereas the modern left is about trying to make capitalist societies more collectivist. You've been listening to a lecture by Dr. Greg Scorzo entitled 60s Counterculture. 
This was the penultimate lecture in the series, The Culture Wars Then and Now. We'll return next week with the final episode when Professor Frank Ferreira discusses the cultural turn that emerged in the 1970s. So don't forget to subscribe to this Ideas Matters podcast on your favourite feed. And if you can, we'd be grateful if you could leave a review which will help us get the word out about this series. For anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcast. Or you can visit the Academy at our website www.theboi.co.uk. I'm Alistair Donald, Secretary of the Battle of Ideas Charity, which organises the Academy, as well as Debating Matters Schools Debating Championships and Living Freedom, the annual residential school for under-25s. If you would like to support this podcast, or any of the educational and citizenship initiatives, then please consider making a donation to the charity. More details of our work and how to support us are available at the website www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nestor Sherman who edited this podcast series. 